Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today and to dive into the text in front of us. It's uh, going to be an adventure. So tray tables up, seats in the upright and locked position, crash helmets on, which may do double duty this morning, as we will, we will see. But we, we are going to try to do something this morning that's going to actually be a little bit different. We're going to try to break uh, this week's message into sort of two parts. And this morning, my goal is going to be to lay out uh, Paul's argument and the structure of what Paul's trying to say in this passage that has often been uh, just very confusing and divisive in the church. And then next week, we're going to come back and likely Ben will be here to to unpack a number of the themes that we're going to be drawing from our passage. So if you don't have all your questions answered this morning, that's okay. Uh, that's that's a known quantity. Uh, we're going to try to address some of those things next week. But I actually hope it will be a benefit, too, because it gives us a week as a church to even wrestle with some of these things on our own in God's Word before that takes place. But if you have your copy of God's Word, I would like to turn directly to that. And if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, our text this morning is going to be verses 2 through 16. I know you just uh, sat down, but if you are able, I'd invite you to stand uh, to honor the reading of that word. And again, as always, if that's a hardship, please don't uh, feel bad sitting. But as you're able, stand. And if you're following along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we begin in verse 2, which says this. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father, as we approach this passage, we ask for your grace. Help us to understand what you want us to know so that we might live as you want us to live because we love you and want to declare all that you have said to be good and do not want to misunderstand or misapply in any way. And so this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I mentioned, there's uh, no shortage of things going on in our passage this morning, is there? Uh, and it was indeed the passage in this entire book I dreaded uh, and was hoping I would not have to preach. And in many ways, truthfully, it was the chapter in all of the New Testament that I struggled with most in trying to understand how to rightly divide it uh, and have felt that way for a while. And so God in his providence 
uh, really did bless me by making me study it. And it was hard, and I wrestled, and that's one of the reasons why if you take your bulletins out, you'll notice your note sheet is blank, is because when that went to print, I still did not know what I was going to say. Uh, but by, by God's grace, I, I think we can try to work our way through here and understand what Paul is saying, and I do believe this is rich and beautiful. But I want to begin by addressing the elephant in the room. And I think for many particularly our ladies, this passage really boils down to one central burning question. Do I have to wear a hat in church? And I want to skip to the punchline so that we can better focus on what Paul is teaching us in our text. And so here you go. If you're a woman, should you wear a hat to church? Our answer is this. Maybe. (laughs) It depends. Uh, There, Uh, it's probably a relief for you all. Uh, And then we're ready to dive in. Maybe. It depends. Paul is going to be taking to our passage this morning a a pattern, a set of principles that he has been using repeatedly in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want to begin by reminding us of what this pattern is so that we see it as we go through. If you're taking notes this morning, your first point is this, a pattern for practical Christian living. Paul has been using a strategy for helping the Corinthians to address all these practical issues of Christian living and learning how to sort through them. And this is the pattern. Revelation. Receive revelation. What is true so that you understand reality from God's perspective, which then helps you to develop biblical principles. And those biblical principles then are ways of summarizing Christian truth for application. That then allows us to make biblical assessments of our circumstances and understand what we're really dealing with so that we can then live a life of faithfulness and obedience. So God's revelation leading to biblical principles so that we can make godly assessments and live a life of obedient faithfulness. And Paul's been doing this over and over, going all the way back to chapter 5 and the issue of the immoral man. Revelation, immorality is an evil we should not associate with. Principle, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Assessment, you've got an unrepentant immoral man right there in your midst. Faithfulness, kick him out. Chapter 6, lawsuits, revelation, we will judge angels and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Principle, better to be wronged than resort to submitting the saints to the world's judgment. Assessment, you're suing each other in claims court in the world. Faithfulness, find wise Christian saints who can adjudicate disputes in the church and stop suing each other. And he does the same thing with issues of the body and same things with issues of marriage and divorce in chapter 7. And then as we've been looking at chapters 8 through 10 with meat sacrifice to idol, he did the same thing again. What's the revelation? Idols are nothing. Meat is nothing. But anything can become a symbol of worship. What's the principle? Do all things then for the glory of God. What's the assessment? Sometimes this meat is just meat. Sometimes this meat is idolatry. Faithfulness. Sometimes you can eat. Sometimes you can't. And that brings us to our text this week, where Paul's going to do the same thing. And he's not done. After he's covered this issue, he's going to take the same pattern, and he's going to apply it to the issue of communion and the Lord's table and what they were doing there. And then he's going to take the same pattern, apply it to the issue of spiritual gifts and how they were being used in the church. And all of this is building to what I think is the apex of Paul's teaching in the book of 1 Corinthians, and that is that this whole thing, all of Christian living... And this whole process of trying to figure out how to biblically apply these principles is drenched in the deep, rich theology of Christian love and what that really means, that that is the attitude and the environment of all of this. And so that's what we're building to. And we'll get there, as I said, in chapter 13. 
So what's happening here then in chapter 11? Well, Paul's going to bring up another issue that the church in Corinth is facing, and he's going to bring up this issue as another category of issue that the church is facing as well. It's, an, it's a powerful chapter because it addresses a very important part of Christian worship and does so by examining a very timely issue of Christian identity. And that, as we're going to see, is going to be the issue of traditions in the church, particularly the tradition of wearing head coverings. So if you're taking notes, our second point is this. Our traditions must be informed. Our traditions must be informed. Look at verse 2 with me. Paul says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. And then look how he begins verse 3. But I want you to understand. Paul, like many good teachers who are correcting a problem, he's going to start by addressing what's going well, and then he's going to address what's not going so well, right? And this isn't the first time we've seen Paul do this. You can recall back in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I don't write these things to shame you. But then just a little while later, he says, I say this to your shame. And then here in our passage, he's going to begin in verse 11 by saying, now I praise you because, and then in verse 18, he's going to say, I do not praise you because, and so he's bookending this passage with, there's something you're doing well, but as is becoming the, the habit of the Corinthians, they're doing something and missing the entire point of it at the same time. And that's what Paul wants to address. What is it that they're doing well? Well, he tells them, because they are holding to the traditions that he has delivered to them. That is what he's praising. You've kept the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Well, what are traditions? That's important because I think Paul is framing this whole issue as a question of tradition. Why do I say that? Because he uses the word tradition at the beginning, and then look at the very end of the section in verse 16. He uses a synonym for tradition, custom, or practice. And so he refers to it as a tradition at the beginning. He summarizes it as a custom or a practice at the end. What does that mean? Well, tradition can be a lot of things, but it essentially is any practice that becomes the norm for a person or a group of people. Any practice that becomes a norm, something you do repeatedly and intentionally. And that can certainly include obedience to specific commands and uh, adherence to certain laws. For example, I hope most of you have developed the tradition that when you see a pedestrian in the middle of the road, you brake. That is a good tradition that also happens to bring you into compliance with the law. But a tradition does not have to be in reference to a law or a command. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, there's only three authors that even use the word tradition, Matthew, Mark, and Paul. And in almost every case where they use tradition, it's explicitly distinguishing between the laws of God and the habits or customs of man. So a tradition is anything that you do repeatedly, repetitively for a reason, for a purpose, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with commands. And I think that that's what we have going on here. This is an example that Paul is discussing of a tradition in the church. And Paul is helping them evaluate that tradition as to whether it's something that they can get rid of or something that they should keep doing and why. 
So does this apply to us today then if it's just a tradition in the church in Corinth? Well, yes, of course it does. Everything in God's word is profitable for us today. But it applies to us not as a command. It applies to us as a principle and an example of how that principle is being applied that we then need to replicate in our context. And so we can't say that just because it was a custom in the church of Corinth, it's unimportant. The issue, as we're going to see, is centrally important to the Christian faith. And if we are going to have a different tradition, we still need to have a tradition that communicates the same truths. So that's what Paul said they're doing well, is keeping the traditions he had given them. But then he says there's something they're not doing well. And what they're not doing well is understanding what those traditions are for. And you can see how Paul immediately gets to that. I praise you for keeping the traditions just as you receive them from me, but I want you to understand. And there he doesn't use uh, the word in Greek for, for know or understand. That means to have like this experiential knowledge of doing. He's not saying, I really just want you to start living this out. He uses a different word for knowledge that means textbook information. He says, you literally are acting like you don't understand the facts. You don't seem to understand the basic information behind what you're actually doing. And that's a problem. They've turned these traditions and these practices, instead of being manifestations of truth, they have now become opportunities for fighting and selfishness. And exhibit A for this problem is going to be the issue of head coverings during corporate worship. And so we're going to look down at verse 3, and just a reminder, as we go through this, we're going to try to trace Paul's argument, we're going to try to understand what he is and isn't saying here, but a lot of these themes we're going to try to tease out next time. And as we get on to that, I want to just reinforce to us, uh, this is a beautiful thing that Paul's teaching, because I think in our, in our church tradition, meaning Bible churches, we are very skeptical of traditions. And there's reasons for that. The Bible church is in part a reaction against other church movements where we looked and said, there's a lot of things they're doing that seem to be dead and cold and distracting from the gospel or even obstacles to the gospel. So we want to get rid of that. And I think we need to hear some rebuke in these pages to say traditions rightly understood, Paul says, are something to be praised. They are praiseworthy. As long as we have traditions that are aligned with truth and communicate that truth clearly. So we don't want to be haters of tradition. We want to be instead those that live them out rightly. And let's face it, we are a traditional church. We have traditions all the time, like not letting you sit in peace after song time's over. We stand up, not because we're commanded to, but because that's a traditional way that we try to communicate a particular honor for the reading of God's word. Why do we, after the Lord's table, typically say every week, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, and then all God's people said, and you respond with amen, not because we're required to, but because that is a tradition that we believe helps to underscore the blessing of that part of our worship service. And that goes on to how we do our Christmas Eve services and our, our Thanksgiving celebrations and, and Easter and throughout the year. We're a traditional church. But all of those traditions need to be informed by and expressions of clear scriptural truth. And that's what Paul's helping them understand by looking at, and here's your next point, 
the example of demonstrating biblical headship in corporate worship. The traditions around demonstrating biblical headship in corporate worship. So Paul, in verse 3, had said, I want you to understand, and here's what he wants them to understand. Look with me at the rest of verse 3. That Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is the revelation, the truth, the reality that the Corinthians were missing that was leading to what Paul calls, in verse 16, contentiousness during the worship and ministry of the church. And it's a deceptively simple verse. Paul simply identifies four parties, God, Christ, man, woman. And he says all four of those parties are in a series of interrelatedness. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of a woman. Who knew that such a simple phrase could lead to so much deforestation as people have debated this in books and writings for millennia? You see so much discussion over what does Paul mean when he describes this, this position of head between these individuals, between these, these categories of people. Is he talking about source? Is he talking about authority? Is he talking about preeminence? Is he talking about foremost position? Is he talking about being first or, or something else? And as I read and read and read this week, cynically, it seemed like often all the options ended up boiling down to one end of a spectrum or another. Either head means slave master or head means nothing in particular, something like mutual respect. Right? That just kind of seems like the direction that we end up landing when we start studying this term. But I think we can narrow down what Paul means just by looking at the clues before us in our text. And one set of those clues is in verse 3, and another set of those clues is in verses 7 through 10. And so I invite you to look with me here at verse 3 first. Headship, this idea of there being a head between God and Christ, Christ and man, man and woman. Headship is a doctrine that must be true in each of those relationships. Christ and man, man and woman, God and Christ. And they must be taken together or we get into trouble. Because, for example, if you just looked at that first category of Christ and man, there's things that you would imply in that understanding of headship there, aspects of authority, of power, of sacrifice, of service. But also you would realize I'm talking about the difference between God and man. And the, the idea of headship very easily could encompass ideas of inequality of value and importance as man is compared to his creator. And that can have some really scary implications, can't it? When you take it and apply it to the relationship between a man and a woman. And he's not just talking about marriages here because notice in verse 4, he's talking about every man. Verse 5, every woman. So does this imply the inferiority of women and their rightful subjugation to men? Well, if all we had to go on was this tiny snippet of this verse and we ignored the rest of the verse and we ignored the rest of scripture, that could be potentially an open question. But fortunately, this is not the end of the verse. And Paul is going to slam that particular chauvinist door shut with a bang. And in fact, I think he wants to do it with a bit of a bang because if you noticed, he didn't put these relationships in the expected order, did he? He didn't start at the top. He starts with Christ to man, man to woman, and then wait for it, wait for it, God to Christ. 
at the end. And I think he does that for a reason, to catch some of the men in Corinth off guard and make them realize their error. What is true of Christ and man when it comes to headship needs to be true of man and woman as it, as it comes to headship needs to be true of God and Christ when it comes to headship. And so there goes all your superiority, inferiority, better than, less than nonsense right out the window. Or Paul just became a heretic for defaming the Trinity in this verse. So if it's not talking about relative worth, relative value, relative essence, what is it focusing on? Well, I think that's where verses 7 through 10 come in very handy as Paul theologically applies this principle. We'll get to this in detail in a bit, but I want you to notice two things. Headship speaks of an ordering of roles, yes, in terms of, look at verse 7, glory, and in terms of, verse 10, authority. And I think those are the two primary emphases of Paul when he's talking about headship. For Paul, headship means more than that, and there are other places in Scripture that flesh that out more, and again, stay tuned, come back next week. But in this passage, I think the two primary things that Paul has in mind when he's discussing headship are categories of glory and authority. Christ and God, equal in essence, they together with the Holy Spirit constitute one being, but they're not the same person. They do not have the same role and function. There is a father and there is a son. Man and woman, equal in essence. They together comprise the image of God bearing reality of mankind. But they are not the same in role and in function. Paul's going to highlight that more in a bit, so I'll hold off on that for the moment. But I want us to, as we start to run into these, these truths... Let's commit as, as a church, whenever we run into these kind of truths, that we don't want to give up until we know and love what God's talking about here. But this is so important because it's, it's really easy when we confront a passage like this to be either dismissive, like, oh, this is for the ladies. Guys, do you have any idea what the implications are? If Christ is your head, we can't be dismissive. And, and for our ladies, it's probably the temptation is there to be so much fear. He better not be saying this. He better not mean this. It better not be about that. That's the wrong heart for us to approach a truth like this. God is speaking about something fundamental to who we are. And when he does, we want to have a heart that says, I want to know what you mean by what you say. And I want to love it because it must be good. It came from you. And with that in mind, then, I think we're all loaded up and ready to go. Let's look at Paul's breakdown of how he says you can, in a church, establish a tradition that displays this great truth about headship. And in the church in Corinth there, that tradition is going to be head coverings, and he'll explain that. And he's going to give three arguments in defense of the tradition. And the first argument is an argument from cultural association. So look with me at verses 4 to 6. Argument A. He's going to have three. This is the first. Argument A, cultural association. Look at verse 4. He lays it out this way. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. 
That's the principle. He's going to support it in a second, but that's Paul laying out his first argument. And it's the first of what we're going to see through this passage is a bunch of these parallel statements where Paul says, the man this, the woman that, the man this, the woman that. And have you noticed how that's been a running theme through so many of these issues? The mutuality of biblical instruction. And that's the pattern and the, and the approach that Paul's taking here, this back and forth. And so up first, the man. If you have something on your head while praying or prophesying, you have, he says, disgraced your head. Disgraced what head? The one on your shoulders or disgraced the one in heaven? Answer, short version, yes. Yes, I think he's saying both. You have externally done something that is disgraceful, which reflects internally on something that is disgraceful. Up next, the woman. If a woman has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying, she has disgraced her head. Again, which head? And again, I believe both literal and positional head. And that's when we start to really have fun in this passage, because what is this head covering? And it turns out we really have no idea. We really don't. That phrase when Paul says that men shouldn't have their head covered, it literally says they should be not having down from the head. That's what it literally means in Greek. And I read so many scholars chasing their tails on this topic, trying to understand what is this having down from the head? Is it a, is it a shawl? Is it a hat? Is it a, a bonnet? Is it just her hair? And it turns out they almost all end up with the same thing. We just don't really know. We just don't really know exactly what this is. A bunch of options, but we don't know what it could be. And some people are like, well, in the Jewish culture, there was the tradition for having the head covered while praying, except that the Jews didn't start that tradition for another 300 years after this was written. So we really have no idea what exact precise cultural custom is being referred to here. But we can say this with some confidence, though we might not know the exact traditional practice, it was a traditional practice that made immediate sense in their culture and in their context. Paul's writing with the assumption that it was obvious to them. And why can we say that? Well, because that's how Paul explains and argues for it. And a brief aside, some of you may have noticed that it is implied in this passage that both men and women are prophesying and praying in a church context. Yes. Yes, they are. Does this mean then that we will start having women pastors at VBC starting next week? No, no, it does not. Why not? Well, because Paul is shortly, and I should preface this, Paul is shortly. It doesn't mean we're going to get to it soon. But Paul is shortly going to turn to telling both men and women that you're praying and you're prophesying in your ministry and church in general is all messed up. And he's going to give men a lot of instruction and restrictions on how they are to properly pray, prophesy, and minister in the church. And he's going to give further instruction on how women are to properly pray, prophesy, and minister in a church. But both men and women are to be valued and accepted participants in the life and ministry of the church. And so that is absolutely tree, true. What does that look like exactly? Stay tuned. We'll get there. So back then to Paul and this issue of cultural associations of their tradition and head coverings. Notice what Paul says here as he goes on in verse 5 to say, Hey, a woman who is praying and prophesying with her head uncovered, she's one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. 
For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. And I think we tend to hear this verse today with sort of like this angry, shrill, patriarchally oppressive voice. Because I think that's how our culture approaches it. And I don't think that's how Paul intends it at all. It's a direct verse. It's a blunt verse. But I also think in some ways it's kind of a humorous verse. A man needs to keep his head uncovered. So gentlemen, no having down from the head, whatever exactly that means. But that doesn't seem to have been a particular issue of contention in Corinth. There didn't seem to be a lot of men complaining that they just had the beautiful bonnet they wanted to wear to church and now Paul wouldn't let them. Right? Most of the issue seems to have been, understandably, the frustration of women. Why do I have to wear something and they don't? And notice what Paul equates here. He says, a woman who's praying or prophesying after uncovering her head in the church of Corinth was, in that context, sending the same message as a woman who publicly shaved her head. He said it's the same thing. And again, I think Paul's almost being funny here when he's suggesting, hey, if you're trying to send a message, why stop at half measures? Commit. If you're going to uncover your head before you pray and prophesy, you might as well just go straight bald and shiny. Come on. Go all the way. And, and the word Paul is using here about shaving or cutting off the hair, this is not talking about your short crops, about your layered bobs, about your pixie cuts. And yes, I did n Google names of short hairstyles. <laughs> He's using a word that has the root meaning of to scrape. He's talking bald. He's being dramatic. He's exaggerating for a reason. And I think if we're being honest, we can still appreciate some of this logic today. Even in our enlightened age, it's extremely rare for a woman to shave her head bald as a demonstration of embracing her femininity, right? That is not normal. If my wife were to come in here today with her head shaved completely bald, you would assume that, again, assuming she hadn't like lost an ill-advised bet, she was either dealing with a very serious sickness or she was making a very serious statement. And Paul is capitalizing on that intuition, that cultural association. He's telling the church in Corinth that these women who are lobbying for or actually removing their head coverings during prayer and prophecy against the tradition of the church are by doing that against the tradition, making a pretty serious statement. It's a big deal. And this would have been a hot-button issue in the Church of Corinth. I think we tend to sort of imagine the whole world just sort of had Victorian ideals up until like second or third wave feminism blew through town. That's not the case. And in many ways, Corinth was a city that had a lot in common with our culture today, including a vibrant and robust feminist scene. In fact, Corinth is the only known city in the ancient world whose women had fought for and gained permission to compete in the games with the boys. We actually have records of women winning events in racing and in music and in my favorite, war chariot races. There was a number of scholars that cited examples from this time period of, of women who were advocating for total equality in society, including showing up at the public baths, because that'll teach the boys, training to fight and hunt, because I get to have that right too, and shaving their heads so that I look just like the rest of you. 
as part of this protest. And so Paul is addressing a real hot button issue in the culture. And I don't think that button has cooled off much in the intervening years. When we talk about our traditions, we need to understand that our traditions come in a context and they mean something to the world watching them. Our actions are meant to be interpreted. You could say that traditions are essentially sermons preached in the language of culture. That's what they are. They're repeated patterns of declaring something in our actions and in our appearance that are meant to be interpreted by the world around us. And Paul's saying here, you know, if you're trying to stand up for something, that doesn't always mean you should be the one that's standing out for something. Your church has an established tradition, and that tradition is communicating something true. And a number of you, by trying to buck the tradition, are perhaps even inadvertently preaching a message that is contrary to truth. Paul is helping the Corinthians to see that that head coverings should be viewed through the lens of cultural interpretation, but also more importantly, he wants them to view it through the lens of theological interpretation. And that's his second argument. So if his first argument is helping them to understand head coverings and its cultural association, argument B is trying to understand head coverings and its theological association in verses seven through 10. You have the revelation of headship, You have that missing principle that they're trying to establish of what is true regarding headship. And all of that is to help them now assess their attitudes and desires when it comes to the question of head coverings. And so Paul's going to lean in on that revelation now in verse 7 and underscore it this way. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. And the therefore comes in verse 10. Look with your eyes, just skip down there. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Uh, Literally, if you notice that phrase, a symbol of is in italics in most of your translations. It's literally a woman ought to have authority on her head. That's the argument. That's the concept. Men should be covered. Women to me, men should not be covered. Women should be covered. And here's the theological framework now for this tradition. Head coverings, Paul says, make sense because of what headship implies regarding these two things, glory and authority. Man is the image and glory of God. That's the reason why he shouldn't have his head covered. Woman is the glory of man. That's the reason why she should have authority on her head. There's some really neat stuff in here. What does Paul mean? Well, he tells us in verses 8 and 9. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. This shouldn't surprise us. Men and women were made differently. And they were made different. And they were made for a difference. That's just a creational reality. God made them differently. He made them to be not the same. They're different. And their function and their purpose is for a difference. Uh, We can see their essential unity in Genesis 127 when God says, let us make man in our image. And so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. That is the essential quality and equality of man and woman. They are both jointly mankind, the image of God. However, as we remember from our Sunday school stories growing up, right? 
God didn't do that act of creation the same way for both of them, did he? One way that we sort of summarize all of this with our youth when we go through these truths is the adventures of Dirt Boy and Glory Girl. The adventures of Dirt Boy and Glory Girl. Think about it. God creates this thing called a man. And what did he make him out of? Dirt. And having made him out of dirt, he then presents the man to what? More dirt, right? Immediately after making man from the dirt, God names him Adam, which means two things, man and dirt. And then takes him and puts him in the garden to till it and cultivate it. He's made from dirt. He's named dirt. He's taken to the dirt. Do you sense a theme? But that's not what God did with Eve, is it? When it comes to Eve, God does not make Eve from the dirt. God makes Eve from the man. And immediately having made her from the man, he brings her to the to the man and presents her to Adam. There's a difference here. And Adam understood the significance of this right away. He knew a helper suitable when he saw one. Again, not an inferior but he saw the missing complement to his masculinity. And so he begins to gush, right? He is dirt from God's dirt, and he is, uh, you know, flesh from God's flesh. But when he sees Eve, he says, she is bone of my bones. She is flesh of my flesh because she was taken from me. And so then he gives a name for womankind, And that name for womankind is a name derived from his name. Adam names her Adama. Just like man and woman. It's a play on words in English and Hebrew. Excuse me. I goofed that up. Isha and Isha. Thank you. Yes. That's how it begins. And then they go into their roles and their functions. They begin by acknowledging their creational difference and the relationship that they're in because of that. But then they begin to go into their roles. And now Adam is ready to give her not just the name of her species, woman, but he's ready to give her the name of herself. And he names her Eve because she is the mother of all the living. And so he says, I'm dirt, your life. I'm dirt, your life. My calling is to the dirt. I will face the chaos. I will take responsibility for it. I will structure it. I will prepare it for filling. I will guard it. I will keep it. I will preserve it. And you will make it a garden. You will fill it with beauty and glory. And there's so much bedrock truth in this. In these realities are anchored the very pillars of human flourishing. of civilization itself. And we don't have time this morning to tease this all out. Can come back next week for the rest of the story. But it's because of that truth that Paul says you need to take head covering seriously as a tradition. There's so much in the background here. Therefore, because of the roles you play in regard to glory, because of the positions that you take in regards to authority, verse 10, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 
It's because of what they represent. And I want you to notice something subtle here, but really important. Notice that it means something different when the woman is reflecting authority and glory in this context. Because the pattern of authority goes from God to Christ, Christ to man, man to woman. And the woman is to find a way, just as the man is to find a way, to both reflect their submission to their head, right? Man is reflecting his submission to Christ. The woman is reflecting her submission to man. But notice, the woman does not represent her glory. And the man does not represent his glory. When it comes to the issue of glory, the man is to be uncovered when he's praying and prophesying because in the context of corporate worship, he is to be an expression of and a presenter, not of his glory, but of whose glory? God's. And the woman is not to cover and to give a sign of humility for her glory. She is representing whose glory? Mankind's. And so the woman is, yes, expressing that she accepts and understands the the authority arrangement that God has designed, but there's also this pageant going on between men and women in corporate worship where men are demonstrating and presenting, this is the glorious God we've come to worship, and women are representing as the glory of man, we come humbly before the glory of God. Both those realities need to be not only understood, but actually visible in the church, Paul says. And then he just throws this little gem in there, because of the angels. A lot of discussion, some just disturbing about what this means, but I think it's really quite simple. I think even to this day, the angels are still longing to look into and understand the glories of the gospel and God's work through his image bearers, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.12. And Paul's reminding the church in Corinth there, what you're doing with your heads, even with these external coverings that you might think are pointless, those are making a theological statement, not just to the audience you know is watching you, but to an audience that you might not even be aware is there. As Christians, we have got to understand the inseparable link between glory and authority. You cannot have a biblical concept of authority if it's detached from glory. And you cannot have a biblical concept of glory if it's detached from authority. They always come together. Our world is always trying to break them apart to its ruin. As Christians, we need to understand how those things work. Again, for more on that, come back next week. For this week, the importance is this. Paul is saying you need to not only understand the relationship between glory and authority, you need to display the relationship between glory and authority. And in doing that, Paul understands some in the church in Corinth there, especially some of the men in the back, are going to run with this and do something very foolish. And so that's why he jumps in here at verse 11 and 12 with a clarification. Don't go further than Scripture. Don't go further than Scripture. And this should always be true of our traditions. In verse 11, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And so Paul's trying to address those probably proud, foolish men that are dealing, they're dealing with their in Corinth who are saying, <laughs> keep preaching, Paul. Did you catch that? You're from me. I'm not from you. You're for me. I'm not for you. Ergo, I'm better than you. Paul says, stop it. Stop it. 
Creation establishes the fundamental differences of men and women in their creation, in their calling, and their characteristics. And this is to be highlighted in our gathered worship, in displays of the differences in glory and authority. And Paul is reminding them, creation also establishes the essential equality of men and women. Their inseparable interdependence on one another and their mutual source in God himself. You cannot pull these two things apart. God intentionally designed it so that we must always come together and depend on one another or the species is over. All you cocky men out there, Paul says, let me take away you ever having had a mom and let's see how that goes. You all needed each other to exist and none of you would be here if it were ultimately because God put you here. Notice God makes man from the dirt. Adam does not make Eve from himself, does he? God still is the maker of man and woman both in different ways for specific reasons, but ultimately all things have their origin in God. If our traditions we allow to run untethered from truth, they'll inevitably lead to trouble. And so with that clarification in place, Paul's ready to kind of land his argument here with his third argument. And this one is just from common sense. Argument C, from common sense. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. And in this final argument, Paul's appealing to just the basic observation. You might even say the instinct of, of looking around and just seeing how the world works. You can go to almost all cultures and almost all places at almost all times, and you'll notice a pattern. The men, in general, shorter hair. The women, in general, longer hair. And everybody generally agreeing that's probably how it's supposed to be. Generally speaking, you do not look like a man with very long, beautiful hair and say, Nice. That's the manliest thing I've seen today. But if you look at a woman with long, beautiful hair, you don't go, oh, such a shame. Why are you all covered in all of that pesky hair? Or he's saying it's just intuitive. We just look at how nature functions. We understand an uncovered man is normal. We understand that a covered woman is normal and that that's a glory to her. And so it makes sense that that could be reflected in how we operate as a church, not just with the covering of our physical hair, but even with the covering of an actual head covering, communicating the same echo of the natural world. As Christians, another thing we need to focus on is learning how to read natural revelation around us, as well as learning how to read the special revelation of God's word, so that we can, in our traditions, express in the natural world, the truths that we find in God's word. And that leads us to our conclusion this morning, which is this. Paul simply says, stop wasting your time fighting when you could be applying. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. For those who were still chafing and arguing about the idea of head coverings, Paul simply states, look, this is the tradition right now. I have no other practice to suggest to you. No church of God I've ever been in has any other way of approaching this. Right now, all the churches have the same idea. Head coverings are the most effective way to form a tradition depicting these truths in corporate worship. And that's why the answer to the question, should women wear head coverings in church today, is maybe. It depends. 
have the theological realities that we are supposed to be depicting in our church when we gather corporately changed? No, those truths never can change. Is there a better way for us to demonstrate those realities in a way that is culturally, theologically, and naturally informed for our context today? Maybe there is. Well, like what? That's a fascinating conversation for you to have with your life groups this week. And come back next week and we'll revisit this more. But you see the principle. This section, I firmly believe, is not meant to be a command regarding head coverings. It is an example of how churches evaluate their traditions so that they are carefully, accurately, and with the right attitude portraying the unchanging truths that God has revealed to us in culturally appropriate and understandable ways. And we as a church need to do that. And that includes coming up with newfangled ideas from time to time as culture change changes. And it also means continuing to do the same things year after year that must never be allowed to lose their meaning. And that brings us to our time around the Lord's table this morning. One of the most treasured traditions of the church and one that must never change because there will never be a cultural context. There will never be a time in which the body and the blood of Jesus do not need to be depicted in symbolic form because that will always be the foundation of the church and of all that we do. We never get beyond the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so as we come to partake this morning, I invite you as I pray, let's make sure that we have oriented our hearts to understand what Christ has done for us and then to display that in the tradition of communion in a way that would be consistent and honoring to him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for our time in your word. But as we now approach the Lord's table in particular, we express our great gratitude to you. Thank you for being a God who loves sinners, not just in, in his feelings, but that you have loved sinners by demonstrating your love for us and that while we still had no merits of our own, you died for us. And that in this, you demonstrated your glory and authority over your son. And the son has demonstrated his glory and authority over those that he has purchased for himself. And we desire, Lord, that we would become glorious through your work so that we might reflect back to you that glory that you so rightly deserved in our humble submission and our eager obedience so that your son can then reflect back up to you all the glory that you ultimately deserve for everything. And that in this we would find great joy. And in displaying this, we would be such an effective and compelling and winsome example of the truth that we believe that the world could at a glance just by looking at us know and understand themselves the light that is behind all that we do. And so we come now and we pray in the name of the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take together. One last tradition. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.